that's where we're at this morning. Um, we just uh, we started Luke 21, what two weeks ago? And again, uh, thank you for Lance filling in. Uh, I heard he did a, a good job. Uh, he's a good guy. I, I, I really I really appreciate Lance. Normally, I ask Mark, but I don't want to wear Mark out. I know he would never complain about that. <laughs> but I try to give people the opportunity, so I'm I'm grateful for Lance to do that. And I've got all this up here about the times of the Gentiles because that's where we're headed. I don't know if we're going to make it there or not. Uh, Hopefully that will survive so that I can go into more detail next week. We'll see what happens. But uh, we're in Luke chapter 21. And uh, let's read verses 12 through 15 just to get it started. And then I'll have a word of prayer and then we'll go to get into our study. It says here in Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 12, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he says to them, but before all these, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And it shall turn to you for a testimony. Settle it therefore in your hearts not to meditate before what ye shall answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay uh, nor resist. Father, we come to you now, Lord, and we pray that you would bless this time as we look into your word and we see what Jesus had said to his disciples. Father, and may we gather from it personal instruction, uh, personal encouragement, Lord God, uh, because we know that it, that's just part of, of being a follower of Jesus Christ, that uh, uh, we will be hated, we will be persecuted. And it's not so much that we are the ones being hated and we are the ones being persecuted, but rather it is Christ within us that the world hates. And as we shine as bright lights, the world doesn't like that. So therefore, Father, may we gather encouragement from what we're about ready to to learn here, uh, the encouraging words that uh, Jesus had given to his own men uh, that so long ago, but still apply to us today. We thank you and praise you for your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so again, as I said in my prayer, the context of this portion of Luke 21 is that uh, Jesus was asked by his disciples about the destruction of the temple, uh, Herod's temple at the time. Uh, they were admiring the temple. They were bringing it to Jesus' attention, how, you know, how beautiful a building it was. And it was. It was an architectural wonder in the day. And then Jesus said something that kind of rocked their world. He, he told them that uh, there was coming a day where there would not be one stone upon another. There would not be one stone upon another. And so this kind of rocked their world. It kind of shocked them. Uh, I may have relayed this story to you sometime uh, back in um, um, 2011. I went to New York City and I saw the Twin Towers. And I went in August. And uh, so I was looking at the Twin Towers. And pretty impressive. I mean, they stood above everything else within... Uh, the city, so they were very impressive right there on the river and If somebody were to come up to me uh, and say, "You know what in September, a couple of knuckleheads are going to fly a loaded airliner into these buildings and they 're going to come crashing down." I would have thought they were crazy. you know I would have thought that they were out of their minds. 
But that's exactly what happened. And so these disciples, they knew that the Lord was telling them the truth. And so they were shocked and they were wanting to know, you know, okay, when is this going to happen? And what are the signs uh, that were going to take place? And if you remember when we were talking about this last time, uh, the Lord had told them about uh, three prevalent conditions that would be upon the earth as this time approached. And we talked about the confusion, religious confusion that was going to be upon the earth. Uh, we talked about the social unrest and the political uncertainty that would be upon the earth as nation would strive against nation. And we also talked about uh, the uh, uh, the environmental uh, catastrophes that would come upon the earth during, uh, prior to that time uh, that would stretch the resources of nations leading into famine and, and pestilence in, in many many places across the surface of this planet and uh, so we talked briefly about these three woeful conditions that would come upon the earth prior to uh, this period of time that Jesus is talking about. And when I, when I uh, said that, it kind of reminded me what Revelations 8.13 said. And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. So what Jesus was telling his disciples is that the signs to look for as this time comes closer and closer and closer are these three woes. These religious confusion, political instability and social instability and these environmental catastrophes. Now Jesus refers to these as the beginning of sorrows in Matthew 24 And so those are the things that Jesus was telling us to look for. You know, keep your eyes open and look for these things. But now he's talking here and notice what he says here in verse 12. He says, but before all these, right? All what? Those three woes that I talked about. But before he says, before all that happens this is what he's getting ready to say this is what's going to occur that's going to directly impact you is what he's saying okay uh he says here but before all these they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you and deliver you up to the synagogues and into prisons being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake so before these three woes kick in full full force this is what's going to happen this is what's going to happen in fact you could um if you are one to write in your bibles uh, right here in verse 12, you can put two things down if you want. One, 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that will go- live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Because that's true. That's part of being a Christian. If you are a Christian living your life for Christ, expect persecution. And the second thing that if you're one to jot notes in your Bible, you could put down the book of Acts. The book of Acts. Because what Jesus is describing here is the very thing that we read about in the book of Acts. The very thing that we read about in the books of Acts. So so Jesus is telling them that, hey, you guys, before all of these woes occur, anyone who names the name of Jesus Christ can expect 
the following can expect the following. Any who are Christians who are living godly in Christ Jesus, you're going to experience uh, persecution. Uh, Jesus had told these men about this. In fact, he, when, he, uh, um, when he was there with them at the Last Supper, what we know of as the Lord's Supper, he told them even then, he said in John 15, 18 through 21, He told him, if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own, but because you are not of the world, but have chosen, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you if they have not if they have kept my saying they will keep yours also but all of these things will they do unto you for my name's sake because they know not him that sent me so that's John 15 18 through 21 that's what Jesus told his disciples on that night he was to be betrayed right you guys are going to be hated because of me because of me the world's going to hate you because they hate me. And isn't that true of the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, if you read about his life in the Gospels, uh, he was persecuted almost from the very beginning of his ministry, wasn't he? And he was hated almost from the very beginning by the leadership. And they sought to destroy him very early on in his ministry because they viewed Jesus as a threat to their System. They viewed Jesus as an enemy and a threat. So he was he was hated from almost the very uh, beginning. And he spoke the truth. He spoke the truth. And uh, because he spoke the truth, they hated him. Uh, I, I, that's true of any of us. If you speak the truth to someone. They're going to hate you for that. They're not going to like it. Nobody likes to hear the truth about themselves. Especially if it puts you in a bad light. And that's what, that's what Jesus was. He was the light that had come into the world. And that light exposes men's evil. And if you're living your life for Christ, then you also are that light. And because you are that light, it's not you that they hate. It's not you that they will persecute. It's Christ in you because you're being that light. You're being that light. You know, there are Christians today uh, that have been murdered and imprisoned. And this, I love, I love the way uh, that some of these places uh, have imprisoned them. They'll, they accuse them of the crime of corrupting the earth with the gospel. That's what they that's the charge that they lay against them. They are corrupting the earth with the gospel. Uh, they also use the uh, charge of there being a threat to national security. Because they're preaching a Zionist Christianity. Some people have been imprisoned under those charges. We're kind of hearing that same kind of language in our own country. We're starting to hear that same kind of language in our own country. 
You speak against abortion, and someone's going to scream that you're threatening their rights. You call homosexuality unnatural or immoral, and they may picket your church in protest, calling you a homophobe or intolerant or unloving. If you address the sin of, of others, you'll be received with hatred and disdain. When in reality, all you're trying to do is tell them how to get saved, how to be rescued, how to, how to, know, for, how to know God's forgiveness in their life. But yet you're looked at as an enemy. You're looked at as an enemy. John 3.19 says, And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Uh, We used to live in an apartment that uh, when we would come home at night and we'd turn the light on, the cockroaches would scatter. (laughs) Because they don't like the light. They don't like the light. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. So they don't hate you because of you. They hate you because of Christ in you. Because of Christ in you. You know, people will accept a loving Jesus that they interpret as being accepting of their unrepentant sin. Right? Um... But they will hate an intolerant, judgmental Jesus that speaks the truth. They're all about the Jesus that loves them, but they forget that Jesus is also holy and just. Pick your Jesus is pretty much the message out there. That's why we've got so many different gospels. Pick your Jesus. Which is your favorite Jesus? And follow him. But don't follow the Jesus of the Bible. Whatever you do, don't follow the Jesus of the Bible. Again, that's that religious confusion that Jesus warned about. Of all the Christs that are going to start showing up. And we talked about that the last time we got together. Pick your Jesus. Pick a Jesus that's tailor-made to your own preference. So in this passage from verses 12 to 24, uh, Jesus is beginning to remember. Now, when Jesus was saying this to these disciples, this was still in the future. All right. This was still in the future. So he's prophesying. He's foretelling. He's telling them, hey, this is how it's going to be after I'm gone. Right? So from verses 12 through 24, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about all those events that we have the privilege of reading about in the book of Acts, and even beyond up to the destruction of the temple, and even beyond that, even beyond that. Uh, what Jesus is talking about here will soon be experiential history for these men. All right? So, put it short, just as Jesus said it would be, it became. So, if you look at these, this passage from verses 12 through 24, all you need to do is read the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. And it's pretty much right here. He's pretty much summarized the whole thing. The first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, 
all, all with the exception of the temple's destruction. Okay, so that, that occurred after Acts was finished being written by Luke. But you could read everything that Jesus talked about took place in the first chapters, 12 chapters of the book of Acts. As an example, if you look at Acts chapter 4, you see the Lord's words come to pass with Peter and John, uh, who were arrested by the Sadducees for preaching about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 4 and verse 1, And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold until the next day, for it was now eventide. So what Jesus said here in Luke 21 took place in Acts chapter 4. When they were brought before the, the, the same council, that condemned Jesus, all right? Peter and John were brought before the same council that condemned Jesus. Peter and John, what did they do? They spoke boldly, right? They spoke boldly before this council. And what they did was, is they presented an unanswerable testimony that this council could not speak against because this always boggles my mind. This council knew the truth that Jesus did rise from the dead. But yet they were stubbornly refusing to believe it. That's amazing to me. That's how hard-hearted these men were. Acts 4.13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Here was the man that Peter and John had healed and they couldn't speak against it, but yet they still refused the truth. They still refused the truth. You know, Jesus had already forewarned his men about this clear back in Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, verse 11, he says, And when they bring you into the synagogues and into magistrates and powers, he says, Take ye no thought how or what thing ye shall answer or what ye shall say. For the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what you ought to say. Now that, when Jesus said that back there in Luke 12, that was before Pentecost, right? So Jesus is telling these men, preparing these men. And now here we are in Luke 21, and what's just a matter of a day or two away? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He would soon be crucified. And he's trying to prepare these men what would be their near future, what would be their reality when he is gone. Another proof, as far as um, I believe that he's talking about what we read about in the book of Acts, is that uh, he is uh, speaking about the synagogues, about these men being brought uh, before the synagogues. And I say this because if you read some folks or hear some folks preach, they get these things kind of mixed up. And they try to put this into the future. But this is, this is what the disciples themselves experienced. So that's what Luke is talking about here. 
prior to the destruction of the temple, uh, the leaders of the synagogues believed that they had the authority to persecute Christians, and they did so. And they did so. Anyone who would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, the leaders of the synagogues would arrest them or persecute them or drive them out of the towns and the cities. Because they believed they had the authority to do so because the temple was still there and the leadership in the temple was still there. We kind of see a little bit of this authority concerning the synagogues because you remember in Acts 28 when Paul was under house arrest in Rome and Paul um, spoke to them about, have you heard anything about me and why I'm arrested? Well, they say here in Acts 28, 12, uh, 21, this is the Jews answering Paul. We neither received letters out of Judea concerning thee, neither any of the brethren that came showed or spake any harm of thee. So that tells me that even in Rome, in the synagogue in Rome, the Jews looked to Jerusalem because of the temple being there and the leadership there. They looked to Jerusalem as the authority. Not unlike the Roman Catholic Church. Where does a Roman Catholic Church here in Harrisonville, where do they look to for their authority? Rome. Rome. So it was a religious system. And so the synagogue believed they had authority to persecute Christians because the temple gave them that authority. The leadership of the temple that gave them authority. After the fall of Jerusalem, with the temple of, and the temple was destroyed, the synagogues lost that authority. And so the synagogues, who at one time persecuted the Christians, after the fall of Jerusalem, the synagogues became the ones being persecuted. That's historical. You can read that in history. So that's why I believe that what Luke is talking about is what we read in the book of Acts. What we read in the book of Acts. Yes, it can apply to us too. Because any who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Will suffer persecution. So what Jesus is relating to his disciples is, Hey guys, once I'm gone, this is going to be your life for my name's sake. This is going to be your life for my name's sake. And notice what he says here in verse 14 of Luke 21. He says, settle it therefore in your hearts not to meditate before what you shall answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. We just saw that in Acts chapter 4, didn't we? Every time these men were set before the authority, they were able to answer in such a way that the authority could not gainsay against it. They had nothing on them because they spoke the truth. They spoke the truth. Now, I've heard this passage used by some to justify never preparing for a lesson, never preparing for a sermon. Just grab your Bible, stand before the people, and let loose. All right? Now, I'm not saying that doesn't happen. Okay? I'm not saying that doesn't happen. But to me, this is not necessarily biblical. 
2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We need to study God's word. We need to prepare. We need to study and we need to uh, prepare. But the context of this passage here is not talking about uh, uh, studying for a Sunday school lesson or a sermon. What is the context of this passage? Christians being persecuted. Christians being brought before an official body to uh, give forth why they're doing what they're doing. That's the context of this passage. So what Jesus is, is, is counseling his men, he says, Hey guys, don't become anxious when you have to stand before this body who hates you. Don't become anxious about that. Because when that time comes, I'll be right there with you. And I'll give you the words to speak at that time. You know, that's, that's really, to me, that's encouraging. To me, that's encouraging. To know that when I'm persecuted, or I have to face someone who hates the gospel, that I have that assurance that Jesus is going to be right there with me and give me the words needed at that time he did the same thing with Moses when Moses was to stand before Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh let my people go God said to Moses in Exodus 4.12 he says I will be with thy mouth and teach thee what thou shalt say he was there with Ezekiel as he had to go to the people who were in captivity and preach to them why they were there And Ezekiel knew he was going to get uh, blowback. God told Ezekiel in Ezekiel 3.27, But when I speak with thee, I will open thy mouth, and thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God. He had that promise. Remember Stephen in the book of Acts? When he had to face the Jews that were persecuting him and eventually stoned him? And how he preached and sent away in such a way that in Acts 6.10 it says, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Because God was there with him. Jesus Christ was there with him and gave him the words that he needed to speak in that situation. This happened on numerous occasions in the book of Acts. Numerous occasions. It's the same promise that we have. Same promise we have. Even though these individuals were able to refute their persecutors, that God had given them the words to speak at that time, that's not a guarantee of deliverance, is it? Stephen was martyred. James, the brother of John, was martyred. But yet these men gave eloquent defense of their faith eloquent defense of their faith but what did occur was that their persecutors was so filled with blind hatred 
with madness because they could not refute the truth. And so what did they do? The only thing that they could do, (laughs) if you don't like the message, you kill the messenger. But is that going to stop the truth? No. No, it's not going to stop the truth. And it was a testimony to these men for the faith. It was a testimony to these men for the faith. So what Jesus is saying here was meant to be a word of encouragement to these men. Now think of it this way. Pretty soon, these same men that Jesus is talking to will be in the garden with him in Gethsemane. And when the folks come to arrest Jesus, do these men stand their ground with Jesus all the way? No, they ran, didn't they? There was a brief resistance, but that quickly collapsed and they took off. You know what Jesus is saying here? You ran away from me, but I will never run away from you. That's what he's saying. You ran away from me, but I will never, never run away from you. So when you're standing for your faith, in the face of your persecutors and those that hate you because of the light that's in you, be assured, even though inside you feel like running away, Jesus is right there with you. Right there with you. The Apostle Paul experienced this. In 2 Timothy 4.16, he says, At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. He says, I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. He said, notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. That by me the, that by me the preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Even though everybody abandoned Paul, Paul realized that Jesus stood with him. And that strengthened Paul. That strengthened Paul. So Jesus promises to all of us who face their persecutors and their tormentors, you're not alone. I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. You know, church history is full of Christians who have faced their persecutors and tormentors and they give a personal testimony of the presence of the Lord during that time that had strengthened them and had given them a courage that was beyond themselves. You know, John Bunyan, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress because of his faith being in, he being in prison because of his faith. Uh, Samuel Rutherford wrote his letters while being in prison for his faith, and they have been a source of comfort to thousands and thousands of Christians. Watchman Nee, uh, uh, a Chinese Christian who is imprisoned in um, uh, communist China. He's dead now. 
was in prison in communist China. He, he, he wrote from that experience and had been an encouragement to thousands and thousands of Christians. And the crown jewel of them all, the Apostle Paul, in prison, wrote his prison epistles that have been an encouragement to millions. And even to this day, we're still teaching from his writings. And all of them testify to the presence of the Lord during those times. He's ever with us. Ever with us. Jesus goes on in verse 16. He says, And ye shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolk and friends. And some of you shall they cause to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But there shall not a hair of your head perish, and your patience possess ye your souls. You know, in times of duress, it's, it's difficult to know how uh, someone will react. I have to be honest. I don't know. I don't know how I will respond or react. I just trust in the grace of God at that time. And it will be sufficient. But we've all heard stories about people who have come to Christ and who were their most vehement persecutors, but those of their own family. Those of their own family. When we went to India, I heard story after story of folks who came to Christ and the number one persecutors that that fell upon them were members of their own family that drove them out of their villages or or threatened to beat them to death. Their own family. Their own family. Now, I've, I, I've, I've said this before. You know, a lot of people say the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. That's not always true. So I rephrase it and I say that's the best place to be is in the center of God's will. That's the best place to be in the center of God's will. And there have been many who have been in prison and many who have been tortured and many who have been executed. And all the while, they've been in the center of God's will. But that's the best place to be. That's the best place to be. So when you're persecuted for your faith in Christ, it's not you. They hate. It's Jesus. If you've got family that hate you, it's not you. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. You know, Jesus, uh, Saul of Tarsus learned this. Acts 9, 4, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? See, Saul was going after the Christians, wasn't he? He was going after the Christians. Jesus had to remind him, you're not persecuting the Christians, you're persecuting me. You're persecuting me. It says here that not a hair of your head will be will perish. You know, some folks look at that as like a contradiction. Because there have been Christians that have perished. The believer is eternal, eternally secure, right? When you die, where will you go? 
you're going to have a body that will never perish. Will never perish. You know, and this could apply to the 144,000 as well. Some have made that application. When they preach during that tribulation period, they're going to be almost untouchable by the Antichrist because they have the mark of God on them. If it's God's purpose, He can protect His people. I'm thinking of Daniel's three friends in the fiery furnace. Not a hair, not even a hair was singed. Not even a hair was singed. I'm thinking of the Apostle John, according to Tertullian, who's an early church father who lived just after that period of time when the apostles were around. He relates the story about John being um, plunged into boiling oil. And then when they pulled him back out, there wasn't a mark on him. There wasn't a mark on him. Not even a blister. Not even a blister. I remember a friend of ours uh, whose father was a missionary in Ethiopia. And he was to travel to a certain village to minister to some fellow believers. And he was warned, don't go, don't go, because the mountain that you have to pass through, uh, rebel forces are there, and uh, they're very, very dangerous, very, very violent, especially against uh, Christians. Don't go, don't go. Well, our friend's uh, father, he was, a, he was undeterred. He was a faithful man of God. He knew that these uh, believers were expecting him. So he drove his car to the bus station, but on the way to the bus station, his car broke down. And so he was late to get to the bus station and missed the bus. Well, that bus that he was going to get on was ambushed, and everyone on the bus was killed. God will protect you if it's in his plan to do so. If it's his plan to do so. But whether God does so or he doesn't so, is that correct? (laughs) You're still safe. You're still safe. You're safe in the hands of Jesus. And if you do die for the cause of Christ, you're going to be promoted in the glory. And he goes on in verse 20. And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out. And let not them that are in the countries enter thereunto, for these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. What Jesus said here, around 32, 33 A.D., came to pass in 70 A.D., That's exactly what happened. The cause of the Roman siege in the first place started to brew around 66 AD when the zealots began to revolt against the um, oppressive taxes that the Romans were putting on them as well as their uh, disdain for uh, Roman rule over its people. And so they had 
this Maccabean aspiration of uh, liberating Israel for the Jews so that uh, they could live uh, in Jewish uh, independence. Emperor Nero, who was an emperor at the time, sent a man by the name of Vespasian to quell the revolt. And Vespasian's campaign eventually drove the zealots from the countryside and bottled them up inside Jerusalem. So that army of zealots ended up being bottled up in Jerusalem and then Vespasian uh, laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. He had all the troublemakers in one spot now. In 60 AD, Nero committed suicide uh, because the people were revolting against him because he was really a nice guy. Okay, But the people revolted against him and they tried him and they were going to dispatch him so he Instead of facing the humiliation, he commits suicide. Kind of like what Adolf Hitler did. Vespasian was then proclaimed emperor. So he had to go back to Rome. But he wasn't finished with the zealots that he had bottled up inside of Jerusalem. So he put in charge his general by the name of Titus, who also would later become emperor. And so Titus began the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD, in April of 70 AD is when he started his campaign. And he did a pretty smart strategic thing. What he did was, this in April, this is when Passover was, he allowed all the pilgrims to come into the city for Passover. He allowed that to happen. But once you got inside Jerusalem, you were not allowed outside. And the reason why he did that was because he knew that... Uh, with the population of Jerusalem swelling with all of these pilgrims coming to observe Passover, that was going to put a strain on the resources of that city. And they're going to eat up all the food. Smart. That's a very smart move on Titus's part. So here you have all these people inside of Jerusalem eating up all the food, and then you've got the Roman forces surrounding Jerusalem. And so what happens is famine starts settling in. And it got so bad that mommies were eating their babies to survive. That's how bad it got. And of course, pestilence started taking its toll in the city. It wasn't a good time. August of 70 AD, the Roman forces were able to push through the city walls and by September of 70 AD it was all over temple caught on fire was destroyed the people were dispersed either sold into slavery or or they were able to escape and scattered out throughout the empire terrible time just as Jesus said terrible time The Lord continues in verse 23, he says, But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days, for there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. Exactly as he said, it happened. A time of woe, a time of great distress. If you were trapped in the city, that would have been a horrible, horrible time. Horrible time. 
Once again, Jerusalem felt the indignation of God for their rebellion and more specifically for their rejection of the Messiah. Now, a lot of people take exception to that. But you have to understand, it was God judging the corrupted religious system. Okay? That's what he was judging. Because it was the corrupted religious system that rejected Jesus Christ. That's the fig tree, and we'll get into that. That's the fig tree that withered up. That's what was being judged. Daniel the prophet warned about this day way back in the 6th century B.C. Daniel 9.26, he says, And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, the crucifixion of Jesus, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come, that's speaking of the Romans, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. So 40 years after the resurrection, uh, after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and his resurrection and ascension into heaven, uh, the city of Jerusalem was visited in judgment and experienced the wrath of God, just as Jesus said it would happen. Jesus gave warning for those who would see those days to flee into the mountains. Get away if you can. There's an estimate that that over a million people died in that siege. Can you imagine a million people? That's just mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. Jerusalem will again experience another siege, and we'll talk about that. I don't have time to get into it. But Jerusalem will again experience yet another siege in the tribulation period. And they will face yet again another possible annihilation because of the Antichrist. But this time, in the future, Jesus is going to come and he's going to save that city. He's going to save that city. And we'll talk about that. I'm not going to get into it this time because I don't have the time. But in the meanwhile, Jerusalem is trodden under the feet of the Gentiles. That's what Jesus says here. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. That's exactly what happened. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. The times of the Gentiles. When Jerusalem shall be trodden under the feet of the Gentiles. Israel became a nation again in May of 1948. But Jerusalem is still trodden under the feet of the Gentiles. Even though uh, President Trump moved our embassy into Jerusalem and recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, the majority of the world do not recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. They do not. In the previous section, I said the admonition of the Lord was to be not terrified. In essence, he says, you know, even though all of these scary things are going to happen, be assured I'm still in control. Even though it looks like it's out of control, be assured I'm still in control. His admonition for us, as we see all these things taking place, 
as we ourselves are living during those times of the Gentiles, his admonition to us in our time is he says, never lose courage, but persevere, endure, persevere, endure. Remember what, he, what I read back here? He says, possess your souls. Can I, can I keep my soul from damnation? It's not a trick question. The answer is no. I can't possess my soul from damnation. God possesses my soul, right? He's the one who possesses my soul unto salvation. So what is he talking about, about possessing our soul during these times of uncertainty, during these times of persecution, during these times as we see these woes beginning to become more and more prevalent? Well, let's do a little Bible study. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And let's read verse 36. Hebrews 10:36. If somebody can find if somebody gets there go ahead and read it out loud. Okay, you see that word patience? That's the same word as possess your soul. Okay? For you have need of patience that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. Turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 8. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 8. All right, so there again, we have the patience. And it says, establish, establish your hearts. Endure, be patient. Hold to your faith. Hold to your faith. Look at Revelations chapter 3 and verse 10. Revelations chapter 3 and verse 10. What we've got there is a promise. And that promise is is we're going to be snatched out of here before things get really, really bad. But he's also, we've also got an exhortation. Keep, uh, um, he says, he says, uh, keep the word of, of my patience. We need to be patient. We need to endure. We need to endure. And then one final, one final uh Passage, Second Thessalonians, and, and chapter three and verse uh, five. Second Thessalonians three five. There you go. There you go. So, what is the exhortation to us as we see all of this stuff taking place? Be patient. Endure. Stand fast. Keep the faith.
Don't become discouraged. Don't let these things cause anxiety and fear to fill your heart. Because we have a promise. And that promise is that Jesus Christ is coming. And Jesus Christ is coming for his bride. And if you are a member of the bride of Christ, if you are a part of the body of Christ, we have a hope, an eternal hope. And we will experience that deliverance. But prior to that, we are to stand firm in the faith. That's our exhortation. In spite of the persecution, in spite of the people calling us intolerant and unloving, in spite of the people maligning us and slandering us because we are Christians and we, and we choose to follow Christ and live godly in Christ Jesus, stand firm. Stand firm. Because one day, 2 Thessalonians 1.4, so that we ourselves glory in you and the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints, to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. We are to be a testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ as we endure in patience, awaiting for the coming of our Savior, our husband, to come and take his bride to be with himself. That's our excitation. Stand fast. Stand fast. Father in heaven, we come to you, Lord God, and we are encouraged by your word, but at the same time, we're, we're humans. And sometimes we get fearful, sometimes we get anxious, sometimes we look at the confusion of things around us, sometimes we, we feel the heat of persecution and the hatred that is totally unwarranted, and we begin to wonder, we begin to fret. But Father in heaven, you, you, you exhort us to stand fast, you exhort us, Lord God, to, to be patient as we wait to hear the voice of the archangel. For one of these days, we will be in your presence forever. May that be our encouragement, knowing that you stand with us through all of these times. For that, we love you and we praise you and we hold fast to you and to you alone. In Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. So I'll try to get into that next week in a little more detail. I knew I wasn't going to get there.